Hello and welcome to the Bolt, Bird and Kemp Free Speech Podcast. My name is Siobhan Crawford and I'm a Senior Associate in the Abuse Team and I am joined today by Claire Beer who is the ISFA Manager at Survivors UK. Welcome Claire. Thanks Siobhan, thanks for having me. No problem. So before we start, are you able to explain a little bit about what Survivors UK is and your role as the ISFA Manager? Yeah, absolutely. So Survivors UK is a pan-London charity. um, And what that means is that we support boys from the age of 13 upwards, men, trans and non-binary people who have suffered sexual um, abuse or violence at any point in their lives. So that could be non-recent abuse, childhood sexual abuse, or something that happened last night. Um, They can come into our service and we have multiple strands within Survivors UK. Um, they can come in and access those services and we can provide them with the support that they need. Okay. And in your role as ISFA manager, do you want to, so ISFA is an acronym, so perhaps yeah. if you break that down for people listening, and then what's your role as the manager as well? So an ISFA, or, or some people refer to them as an ISVA, um, is an independent sexual violence advisor. So... Predominantly, an an ISVA is someone who will support through the criminal justice system or if someone is considering reporting to the police and we can support them with that. My role as an ISVA manager, I have a team currently of six ISVAs um, between four and part-time posts. We also have two caseworkers that sit within my team. They don't support through the criminal justice process, but they are there to support people who have already been through that process and would just need some extra help, like looking at housing situations or benefits and things like that. And my job is to oversee them, as well as doing things like funding, looking at data and reporting, going through difficult cases and supervisions with my team on a regular basis to make sure that they're getting adequate support for the clients that they're supporting. Mm. I think that's really important, that supervision role, Mm. because a lot of people, when I tell them what I do will say, well, do you have supervision? Because a lot of the work that you undertake is quite sort of heavy, for want of a better mm. word. And I think actually the ISFA roles are incredibly important. And what I have found by speaking to people is a lot of people don't even know that role exists yeah. or there's someone there to help them. So if somebody's listening and they're thinking about reporting to the police now, When would you suggest that they reach out to Survivors UK and ask for the support of an ISVA? And what sort of support could be given? Because the other thing I hear a lot from people is the police were great, but... And then they will say maybe that they were left without updates for sort of weeks, months on end. Because as you know, the criminal justice system is a very slow-moving beast. So what would your advice be about reaching out to an ISVA what's the right time is it always a good time to reach out and what sort of support would an ISVA at Survivors UK give okay so in an ideal world and that that's not something that we you know we use lightly but in an ideal world when someone reports an incident of sexual abuse to the police um, ideally the police would then offer to make a referral for that client on, you know, to, to Survivors UK or a, a different organisation um, for ISVA support. So that would be a perfect situation so that a, a person would be able to 
acknowledge that there is that support out there the minute that they've gone in and reported a, um, a sexual offence crime to the police. It's, that doesn't happen. Uh, it doesn't happen all the time. And it's great when it does. Um, and of course, it's it's someone's choice to be able to be offered that. It might not be that they want to engage with that. It might not be the right time for them. But if somebody is wanting is for support, then they can self-refer via our website at any point. So even if they haven't gone to the police yet and they're deciding whether that's the right thing for them to do, but they want to know a bit more, you know, where are they going to go to find that out? Where are they going to, uh, which services are they going to go to to just ask questions about how do I report to the police or what might that look like for me? So that is absolutely something they can do. Um, they, As I say, they can self-refer on our website and they can have up to three months worth of support from an ISVA. And in those three months, they can ask questions. They can, you know, like I've just said, what does reporting look like? How do I do it? What will happen once I've done it? All of those questions that p some people might have, an ISVA can, can answer those and provide them with emotional support through that time. Once we get to the end of the three months, if they decide that reporting is for them and that is what they want to do, then in ISVA, that, the same ISVA will stay with them and assist them with reporting. And then you're quite right in saying that police investigations are such a long process. Um, what happens when somebody is waiting a year, a year and a half, two years, even longer throughout that process? And we would be very ignorant in not letting people know that, that the, the police investigation is a very lengthy process. But with your ISVA support, you're there throughout the whole process with them, checking in on them. They have your email and mobile number. So if anything happens or anything arises in those in those months and sort of years of waiting, um, you can contact your ISVA and they're there to support you. That includes the 28-day checkup, really, with police that they should have every 28 days you should have an update, which we know, especially for people that haven't got ISVA support, that that doesn't happen a lot. Um, so NISVA is able to chase the police every 28 days on your behalf um, and just see if there's an update, even if there's nothing, mm -hmm. even if it's we are still investigating the fact that you've got something back just to say we haven't forgotten about you. We are still, we're still looking into the case for you. That means a lot to a lot of people. So, you know, that's just a snippet of what NISVA can do. But if, if people are considering or they do want some questions answered, then uh, Anisva can do that. And I think so many people are unaware. So we have people, when I say to them, you know, well, what was the last update from the police? Or oh, I heard from them a few months ago. And they're so unaware that the police are meant to update them every 28 days. Yeah. And on top of that, they, they say, well, I don't really want to chase them because I feel like then I'm harassing them and I don't want to annoy them. And so it's really good to have that support of a third party who you know is fighting your corner to do all of those things that somebody who's gone to the police to disclose their abuse, it's one of the most vulnerable things, if not the most vulnerable thing somebody can ever do in their lifetime. And I can understand why people would want maybe somebody to just act as a bit of a sort of third party for them because... That I understand when they say I don't want to annoy them because what they want is I'm going to leave it in the, the hands of the police so I can get the best outcome and I don't know if annoying them in inverted commas mm -hmm. 
is going to get me the best outcome. I would caveat that with you're never annoying a police officer when you're asking for an update. Um, And more often than not, it's just because it slipped their mind. It's it's nothing sort of nefarious behind it. Um, And so in respect of that advocacy, for want of a better word, when somebody has reported to the police, what else can they do in that police process to assist other than sort of reaching out and um, asking for an update? Is there any other things that they can do to support people who are going through the criminal process? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just as a side note, really, we are completely aware, we work very closely with the police and we are aware that they are absolutely overstretched, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and they're not giving people updates because they can't be bothered. Uh, You know, it's it's just because their caseloads are huge, but it doesn't mean that they you know that they haven't just because they haven't got the time to do that that it's okay not to do that Mm -hmm. you know these people are waiting for months and months and months for an investigation Mm -hmm. and it's just re-triggering for them every time their phone goes and it's the police they don't know what they're going to say or do what's going to happen next and it's just really traumatic a really traumatic time for people going through this process I think within is for support obviously like I've mentioned before the check-ins are there we say that we will check in monthly. Now, that works for a lot of people. But if monthly is too long, then, of course, we will provide um, sooner check-ins. If someone wants sort of fortnightly check-ins, that's absolutely fine. But like I said, we've got the contact details for the years first. So if something happens or they've got a question that's popped up in, in their mind and they want that answered, then, of course, they can get in contact with their ISVA. We've got other support within Survivors UK, Mm -hmm. which they can be signposted to, which I can talk about in a minute. But we can also signpost to other agencies. So if they're struggling with poor mental health, they've been to see their GP, or even if they're not, you know, they they don't feel comfortable disclosing how they're feeling to their GP, we can write supporting letters, we can speak to their GP on their behalf if we've got consent to do so, and encourage a GP to signpost to sort of mental health services, we can also signpost to lots of other services on their behalf. So we can go through part of our procedure that we do when someone comes in for support is we fill out um, a risk and needs assessment for them. So that's one of the, f- the first things we do. And that risk and needs assessment gives us a clear indication of which areas this person is really struggling with at the moment. And that can change, obviously. But we know if they're struggling with misusing drugs and alcohol, you know and and they'd like some support with that that's something that that we can do we can get them signposted we can support them along their journey with that if they're not sleeping properly or they're not eating properly um, they're having flashbacks they're having nightmares we've got resource packs that we offer um, and and just generally talking to people about how that makes them feel um, and experiences that we've shared from supporting other clients over the years um, and what works well for some people so it's it's just about being empathetic and providing mm-hmm. that person-centered approach mm-hmm. in in what we do every day and just allowing people to realize that it's okay for them to feel that way and it's okay for them to be behaving in and believing in things that they do because it's normal because that is part of trauma and and the whole organization takes a trauma-informed approach with all of our support that we offer our mm-hmm. survi- our victim survivors it's so interesting what you say as well about generally we do monthly check-ins but we tailor our service to the person mm. because that's exactly the same way 
that we have to work and we gladly work. And I say all the time to clients, particularly at the end of a case, because it's often bittersweet because we've got them a good result, but you've been in their, well, I've been in their lives for however long. Mm. And then it's sort of all of a sudden it just comes to an end. Mm. And I do always say to clients, I imagine you won't miss my number flashing up on your phone. And they always say, I'll be honest, no, <laughs> it's nothing personal. But, and you're so right, because I think what anybody that works with survivors of sexual abuse has to remember is that it's not just a job. I think there has to be um, an element of wanting to also help people and ensure that when you're helping people that you make sure that this might be the 50th case you've run but it's the first one they'll ever do and hopefully the last and so it's really important to make sure that you ask them what do you want out of this and how do you want me to communicate and put them at the center of it because as well a lot of the time the abuse people suffer isn't always solely sexual gratification. It's also about control. And so if you offer that to them and say, how do you want that? Then you're giving them a bit of control back associated with something that where they may have had no control at all. So I think that's really important. But in respect of the other services that survivors offer, what sort of things would you be able to give people who reach out to you? So, you're, first of all, you're absolutely right in, in what you've just said. And I think the cho- it's 100% their choice. First of all, the main thing we do when they come into our service is to let them know that we believe them mm-hmm. um, and, and that we're here to listen to, to what they've got to tell us. And then it's about what do you want? Because it's not always I want to report to the police. I want an investigation. Um, I, I want it. I want it to go to court. I want this person to go to prison. And it, it's not as clean cut as that. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we have people come into the service where perpetrators have, uh, are deceased. So there's, there isn't going to be a court case because that person isn't there to face the criminal justice process. So it's about, you know, like you've rightly said, you've got the control now. Mm-hmm. This is your time to choose what you want to do with it. So what is it that you would like? And sometimes people are just... I just want to tell my story to the police and I know that they can't go and arrest him or speak to them or, but I just feel that that's what I need to do. And once I've done that, then I feel that I can sort of close a book on that chapter. Mm. Um, and that's where our, our other services are all interlinked in what we do. You can't, you don't just have to have one service and then you can move on to the next service when the other one closes. You can use them all at the same time. Mm-hmm. So we obviously have the ease for service that I've just spoken about. We also have um, the counselling service. Now, at the moment, we offer short-term and long-term counselling. Obviously, for long-term counselling, the waiting there is, uh, you know, quite a considerable waiting list. We we know that we understand that we're not happy with that, but we have the counselling team have doubled in size over the last sort of nine to ten months. Um, and we now offer various different forms of counselling. So that service is growing because, and it's growing because we know that people are waiting. So we have long-term and short-term therapy for for anybody in any service. So you can use counselling if you're in the ISFA service, you can be on the counselling waiting list or access counselling. We also have our helpline, 
Um, now, our helpline isn't a phone line. You can't call in, but it's a, a web-based SMS chat. So it's like a text service or you go onto our website and you can type through that um, and you will get a, a human at the end. Um, it's not a, an automated or robotic um service so there is a human at the end of it who is fully trained in dealing with trauma responses that service is open seven days a week apart from bank holidays and it's open from 12 lunchtime until 8 p.m at night and you can access that for up to 45 minutes every day so you know we get a lot of people use that it is not just if you are a sexual um, offenses victim survivor it could be if you are a friend, a family member, a spouse, a child, a professional of anyone really who is affected um, by sexual abuse can, can access that. Then we also have our group work. And that's the fourth sort of strand that we have. Group work is a huge part of Survivors UK. Um, and we have a large amount of groups that, that currently run. Some of them are open groups. Some of them there is a waiting list for. And I mean, I, I couldn't sit here and rattle them all off. And, and you know, there's, there's far too many. Mm -hmm. But on our website, you will find the email. If you're interested in group work, just send an email through and you'll be put on the mailing list. But it's things we have groups like a children and young persons group. We have um, a BAM group. So a black, Asian and mixed heritage group. Mm -hmm. Creative writing, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, so it's a, a game-based yeah, yeah. um, group. Oh, you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, there's there's loads, loads of different groups, and there's something out there that's going to suit everyone. Yeah, they are facilitated um, by members of Survivors UK across the board. So sometimes there are visits that facilitate alongside counsellors or group work. You know, people that work in our group work. So. It's, it's, it's a really large family that's facilitated by a, a, a mixture of all different services that run within survivors. So, yeah, it's really great. It's a, it's a wonderful service to have. Yeah, and I think actually just you listing out all those groups illustrates the diversity of what you can access as yeah. well. And then in respect of your role, something that you touched upon that is important and that you do is funding. Now, obviously, Survivors UK is a charity and funding is key. And are you able to tell us a little bit? Because I, I think a lot of people who have, haven't necessarily been involved as, um, with charities as trustees or board members or um, chairs or anything like that might not recognise that funding is the life or the death of a charity. They probably know if I give, if I give donations, the charity will continue to work. But there's lots of different funding that you can have. You can have sort of like defined funding for a certain project or things like that. Yeah. That's probably a bit too much for now. But funding is so important. So I imagine that it is one of the central roles that you have. Are you able to tell us a little bit about the importance of the funding and, and what you do day to day to try and secure that to make sure that this really important charity that, as you've alluded to, offers so many you know, vital services for survivors of sexual assault and abuse. What does that look like? And what can we do to help? <laughs> Bless you. Well, you know, BBK are amazing um, and, and really are vital supporters of Survivors UK. So, you know, thank you all of you for everything that you do for us. But yeah, you're right. It's it's not a statutory funded um, 
sector. Mm. So the National Health have ISVAs who are statutory funded, but most ISVA organisations and sexual violence um, organisations are charities. Um, and Survivors UK is a charity. So we do have funding that comes in um, predominantly from the Ministry of Justice, mm -hmm. but that isn't a permanent funding stream. Mm. Um, up until very recently, it was yearly. So we would be allocated money from one year to the next. Mm. And that's really difficult. It's really difficult to retain staff with that. Mm. Because obviously with, with the cost of living and, and crisis and, and times are hard for everyone, only knowing that you've got enough funding and a salary for a year at a time for your work is really difficult. And, and as you've said before, people do this work not for the money, absolutely not for the money, but it's because we want to help people and we're passionate about working in the sexual violence industry. So how do we, how do we make our money go longer and where do we get our money from and that's a really good question of course charitable donations are vital to us as they are to lots of other charities we've had people run marathons consecutive marathons recently for us as well as the london marathon nothing is too small or too large so you know we've had cake sales and bake sales that people do um we have monthly donations that people set up that come in, um, you know, and people say, oh, I'm sorry, it's only sort of £10 a month. But those £10 a month are, are vital for what we do and how we run. So, yeah, I, I mean, people can go onto the website and donate. There is a donate button there. But likewise, if someone wants to do something like a bake sale or run a marathon or post something in the name of someone that you know thinks that survivors uk is great mm. then we would always try and facilitate where we can joining in with that you know if it's a fairly local event and it's within london we would try and send someone down to um to join in with that where we can so we appreciate that that times are hard for people um but we we really value any donation that we can get in in any form of however someone wants to donate their hard-earned cash to us. I've had so many people say to me as well, when we've obtained them compensation, they've said, oh, actually, I'm going to use some of this to give it back to Survivors UK, who supported me and who provided the counselling when it wasn't possible on the NHS and things like that. And I think that speaks volumes that service users, for want of a better word, yeah. when they can, will put back into the service that you know possibly was a safety net for them when there was no other safety net that they could turn to and I think that's a really powerful thing when someone says that to me because I think that that illustrates how close Survivors UK is held to their heart that mm -hmm. they are saying actually this compensation is for the abuse that I suffered on therapy and loss of earnings and things like that but I'm going to give back to the people that helped me when I needed it most. And I think that that just is a real testimony to the work that you do and the importance of it. So I guess the headline from that part of the podcast is, if you have anything, please put something in your, well, put your hands in your pocket and try and give it to Survivors UK, accepting that currently things are pretty tight for people, but every little counts, right? Absolutely, yeah. We appreciate everything and anything that people can donate and you know we're there for anybody if, if you think that 
we are the right fit as an organisation for you and you want to come through and just find out a little bit more about how we can help and if we can help, then come through to our helpline and they will point, point you in the right direction. But, you know, it, we're there just to be able to ask those questions too. And if you're not sure, you're not sure you want that support, then that's okay. But just for people to know that, that we believe what they've said and that we're here to listen to their stories if they'd like to come forward and talk to us about them. Um, yeah, absolutely. And we'll put all of the contact details for Survivors UK in the notes for this podcast as well, just if anybody wants to quickly access them. But if you Google search Survivors UK, you're fairly easy to find on the internet as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Claire. I really appreciate it. It's been incredibly helpful to me and I'm sure to everybody listening as well. Um, and I wish you luck with funding. And also just I hope that the work that you do continues because it is awesome. Thanks so much, Sean. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. You can catch the BBK free speech podcast on all listening platforms. Goodbye.